It is truth. That's the reason we're here, and we hold it in our hands. If you have a Bible in your hands, would you open it to the book of 1 Timothy? And we're going to be looking at the first several verses in chapter 3 this morning. And, uh, of course, if you have a digital device that works too, would you stand with me as we read from God's Word this morning? Again, it is 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. And the Apostle Paul writes this, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he must not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil." Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. So some have wondered, why is it that we have been going through this study uh, called In Essentials Unity? Why is it that we're going through all the articles of the Statement of Faith? Why is it that last week we talked exclusively about membership? Why is it that today that we talk about church governance? We all love to, right? That's the reason we want to dissect church governance and, and just, we just thrive on that stuff, like I mentioned earlier. Not really. No, but we do these things for, for several reasons, and there are actually more than these. But, but, but one of the first is because it's important to remind ourselves of some of the core things that we hold to as a people, as the people of God. We remind ourselves about those things. That's important. Secondly, it's important that we um, get those essential and important things in clear view as we prepare for January 30th, when we meet together and the members will vote on uh, some, some big changes that we are making here to our Constitution, namely the change to, from deacons to elders. Finally, it lets us know that, that we're not changing, that we're not changing who we are in Christ and who Christ has called us to be. And most importantly, perhaps we're not changing our understanding that this is God's authoritative, inspired word. And this is what we sit under. We humble ourselves under. And so, uh, so that's why we're doing this. Uh, and, uh, and it's good. 
if it's true that in Genesis 3, humanity departed from God's way of doing things and exchanged God's way of doing things for its own way of doing things, and if it's also true that Jesus came to rescue people and bring them back into right relationship with their maker and right relationship with each other, right, and unite them into the people of God, that is the church, then the church is to be a realignment, a realignment with what God has intended from the very beginning. The people that have been called out of darkness and brought into his marvelous light, they're to look like what God wants, not what they want, right? And so the church, it doesn't really care whether, it, whether or not it's on this side of history or on that side of history. It doesn't care about what's popular and what is not popular. Before and above everything else, the church wants to be what God wants it to be. And it believes that that is the very best way to be. And so week after week, the church searches what God has revealed in his word and seeks to be continually realigned with it. And that means that we can never get so comfortable with the way things have always been done. So comfortable with the way things that have always been done that we're unwilling to allow God's unchangeable word to refine us and mold us and shape us. Tradition has to take a back seat to truth. Amen? Yes. And that is what I would like to call us to this morning. I'd like to ask that we humble ourselves under the authority of God's holy word, think carefully and prayerfully about it, and prepare ourselves to take a very critical step in more fully aligning with God's word, what he has revealed for his people, the church. The passage that we read this morning, it outlines some of the qualifications for those who are going to serve in, in, in the highest leadership positions of the church. They're of tremendous importance. Importance. Those who lead in this very important um, role and in the most important institution on the planet must meet very high qualifications. In fact, there's all of these qualifications, of all of them, there's really only one ability that's mentioned here, and that is the ability to teach. All the other qualifications are about what? They're about character, are they not? And so before business experience, before marketing and accounting and event planning and construction skills, before degrees in sociology and counseling and the ability to problem solve and think creatively or even to cast vision, before all of those things, leaders in the church, they need to be like Christ, especially when it comes to their character. And so we have a list of things here. They need to be above reproach. They need to be the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, hospitable, not a drunkard, gentle rather than violent, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, dignified, not double-tongued, not greedy, and so on. Now, 
if you think about these qualifications, you'll quickly realize there's, there's nothing really here outside of what God calls all his people to. And that's important for us to realize. It's not that the leaders of the church are supposed to be some type of super Christians. It's not that they're supposed to walk on water or turn water into uh, wine, do superhuman feats. No, they're just supposed to be like Jesus, which the rest of the church is aspiring to as well. And they need to take it very, very seriously. Why do they need to take it so seriously? Well, for one thing, it's what... Christ has called all of us to, and we all need to take it very, very seriously. We need to be holy as our Heavenly Father is holy, perfect as He is perfect, right? But they also need to take it seriously because of the role that they have. If they're going to lead the church, if if they're going to care for the church, teach the church, equip the church, then they need to be serious about what it looks like to be a member of the church, to be closely aligned to what God wants for his people. And so we have to take these qualifications very, very seriously. In fact, if a member of our leadership is found to uh, be lacking in one of these areas, then, then we need to address that. We can't just ignore it. We can't uh, push, brush it under the table. No, we need to bring it out to the light. We need to address it. It may mean asking a leader to step down for a period of time. Yes, we're going to speak the gospel into that situation. Yes, we're going to long for restoration. That, that will be our, our goal. We're going to long to restore that person back to right fellowship with Christ's body, but we can't set aside those failures. And we've seen that time and time again, haven't we? All you have to do is turn on the news. It seems like just about once a week we see another church, another fellowship. They brushed it under the carpet for too long and people get hurt again and again and again. We don't want to do that. No, these character qualities matter. We have to take them very, very seriously. Essentially, that's where this morning's passage takes us. But the problem is that before we can even really begin to apply these things, we've got to address an elephant. I was at the zoo yesterday. They're hard to miss. They're rather large. They make noise from time to time, and they smell. There's an elephant in the room here, and it's the reality that as we read this passage and passages like it, we come to realize that our church differs in the way our leadership is structured from what we see in the New Testament. We have to go, what's going on here? Why is that? And someone might say, well, so what? I mean, who really cares? Is this really a big deal? As long as we're preaching the Bible, as long as we're, we're telling people about what Paul said in, in 1 Timothy uh, uh, 1.15, that Christ came into the world to save sinners, right? The most important thing, we're getting it out there. As long as we're doing that, well, then why worry about governance, that polity as they call it? Well, isn't that just a technicality here? Does that really even matter? Well, it, it, it actually does matter. 
It does matter because as the body of Christ, and in particular a church that holds in very high esteem the, the fact that Bible is, is our middle name, Bethany Bible Fellowship, then we need to be aligned to that Bible, don't we? We believe that all Scripture is breathed out by God, that it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. We talked about that just recently in one of our essentials. All Scripture is breathed out by God, and therefore all Scripture needs to be taken seriously and applied to what we believe about life and how we do life and how we do life together. We do not have the luxury of picking and choosing little parts of Scripture that we want to listen to, right? We don't have that luxury. We can't do what Thomas Jefferson did and start clipping pieces out of our Bible and say, oh, yeah, yeah, this is what, this is our Bible. We believe these, not those things. Those are, those are in the fire. No. We got to take it all seriously. We got to take it all. We got to work through it all, and we've got to humble ourselves under it all. And that's true when it comes to some of the most basic things in life, right? It's true when it comes to our personal identity. And when we look in the mirror, who we say we are, we have to humble ourselves under God's word. It's true when we, when we look at the things we do in life. There are things that we will do and things that we won't do because we submit to God's word. And it's also true when it comes to how we do church. Someone might say, well, so Paul talks about elders in the church. In his letter to Timothy, okay, Paul talks about letter, uh, 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 elders. That doesn't mean that every church needs to have them. I mean, Paul doesn't say anything about those deacon-led churches transforming themselves into elder-led churches. He doesn't say anything about that. And you are absolutely right. Absolutely right. There's good reason for that. That's because the New Testament gives us every reason to believe that there were no churches led by one pastor and a board of deacons. It just, it's not there. You don't, you don't find it. Instead, what we see over and over and over again are churches that are being led by a team of faithful, godly elders who've loved their churches well as they teach and lead and model and pray for their people. That's what we see. And what I'd like to do in the time that we have left is just help us get our heads around a biblical framework for church government. When I say biblical, I'm saying what we see in Scripture here. How, how was it aligned back then? And, and let's ask ourselves, should it be aligned that way now? Let's take it from the top. Biblical leadership in the church. You know who leads the church? It's Christ. Christ is the head of the church. It's, it ain't me. Thank God it is not me. Christ is the head of the church. When it comes to who stands in authority over all of us, who's at the very top? It's Jesus. It's not the Pope. It's not, it's, there's no bishop. There's no king. There's no president. There's no one other than Jesus. Ephesians 5.23 tells us that. Christ is the head of the church. His body, 
and is himself its savior. Colossians talks about it, 117. And Christ is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. Ephesians 4.15 says, We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And so the church, before anything else, is, is built on, it's, it's headed by Jesus. He's the one who started it. He's the one who bought and paid for it with his blood. He's the one who appointed apostles to write down and make known the foundational truths upon which the church stands. And even now, he's building it. He's providing for it. He's interceding for it. And he's empowering it to continue to do his work here on earth. One pastor made a crucial point long ago, and he said, church is not merely an organization. Oh, no. It's not an organization, not merely an organization. There are a lot of people in the church, in our church, in fact, who are a part of wonderful organizations, and they are learning great and wonderful things, and they have different models out there that they bring to our church, skills that they bring to our church, knowledge that they bring to our church. That's not a bad thing. On the contrary, it's a good thing. But we can never think that church is merely an organization. This is an organism. It's a divinely created and sustained organism. It's a living, it's the, the living body of Christ. And Christ is the head. And so we need to make sure that we never allow ourselves to drift into thinking that regular human strategies or tactics or structures will ever be enough for the church of God, for the church of Christ to grow and flourish. We have to first look at Christ for our authority, our direction, and our provision. Christ is the head. Secondly, members. They are priests and ministers. They are priests and ministers. Have you, have you taken the time to memorize 1 Peter 2, 9 yet? We talk about it over and over again. You're probably getting sick of it because I, I say it all the time here. You are a chosen race. What else are you? A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Sometimes we look at ourselves as Christians and we think far too little of ourselves. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people... But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. Notice what it says about your position here. You are a royal priesthood. It doesn't say that you were a chosen race and that you have some, some priests who can go to God on your behalf. No, it doesn't say that. It says you, men and women of the church, you are the priests. You are the priests. Look at Revelation 1. It says this in verse 5. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood 
and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. What did Christ do? Well, he loved us. He loved us. He freed us, it says. He made us a kingdom and priests. You might be going, well, does that mean we have to all get those little white collars and and walk around going, hmm. No, 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 no. When we talk about being priests, we're talking about the reality that you need no mediator, no one to go between you and God the Father other than Jesus Christ. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him, right? You have a direct connection with God through Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there's one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. You are priests. You can freely, because you were washed by the blood of Jesus and clothed in his righteousness, you can freely communicate with your heavenly Father that is monumental. Never take that for granted. You are priests. You are also the ministers. Some churches have gotten to this bad habit of thinking that the the pastor is the minister. And it's true, I do some ministry here. But the ministry really doesn't have anything to do with my job. That, the ministry that I do, I do because I'm a part of God's church. I'm a believer just like, Lord willing, you are and a member of this body. And so ministry is what I do. It's what we do. It's because we're Christians. 1 Peter 4.10 tells us that each of us, every single one of us, are ministers. And Ephesians 2.10, it tells us that we have been created in Christ Jesus to do what? To do good works. When we were reborn into Christ, we were gifted with special gifts to use to serve the body, to serve one another, that we might be built up together in the love of Jesus Christ. Every single one of us. All of us. And you might be sitting there like I sat there years ago saying, yeah, I could see how the guy next to me has been gifted to be used powerfully to work in the lives of others here. That guy can get up and speak and he doesn't prepare and he just goes and goes and he does this and that. And I look at myself and I got, I got nothing. God, what have you given me? You might be there. Don't buy that lie. Because if Christ is in you, you have been created in him to do good works, whatever they may be. It's not just the pastor who's to be called the minister. It's not just the elders who are called the ministers. Church was never to be designed to be a bunch of members who contribute some money so that one or two or three people might do the work. Not much gets done that way. We're not very effective that way. And the impact of the church in the world is very, very small that way. It's actually to be the other, we're actually, I think, the other way around. 
that a pastor or an elder or any church leader, a teacher, is there to equip the body that they might be the multiplication of ministers that go out and serve. And that changes the world. They say that one man might be able to move a few stones. I moved some stones in my backyard uh, this past week. One stone, actually. It was about this big, and I could not pick it up. I rolled it with all my might. And my arms are still scraped up from trying to move this one stone. And I was thinking the whole time, if I just had someone else to help me, where are my kids right now? (laughs) One person, they might be able to move a couple stones. What can a whole church do? Jesus had 12. It's the job of the pastor and the elders to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That's what Ephesians 4.12 tells us. So Christ is the head. The members are the priests, and they're the ministers. Jesus is the head. He's leading this whole thing. He's keeping it alive. He's causing it to grow. And we're there ministering freely and joyfully. The next thing it's very important for us to realize is that if Christ is our head, there's, there's, he's the one mediator between us and God. There's no other authority in there between God's people, the church that he has put together, and Christ. And so we believe that the local congregation, the local body of church members, that is what holds the authority when it comes to faith and life for the church. Apart from Christ and apart from his word, there is no authority over you. There's nobody Even if someday we choose to more formally link arm in arm with some other churches, maybe in our community, or maybe we decide one day, you know what, we need to be a part of a denomination because we can work better together than we can apart. Even if we do that, the local congregation, our body, holds all the cards under Christ. We have no authority over us. There's God, there's Christ, His Word, His Spirit. And then there's the people, the church. And under Christ, you men and women who are members of this body, you have the final authority in matters of faith and life for this church. That's why we're going to be voting in a couple weeks. You are going to be voting on critical matters for this small outpost that we have here on a corner in Westminster. Now, does that mean that the congregation needs to be involved in every single decision? No, 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 no. It does not mean that because that would be a complete ridiculous waste of time. Well, the plants need a little bit more watering. We better call a congregational meeting. The worship guy, he needs new guitar strings. That wasn't in the budget. We need to call a congregational meeting. No, that'd be crazy and prevent us from doing the things that God really wants us to do. You may have heard that word congregationalism before. And some people take it to mean that that means that the congregation just votes on everything. And what really happens when the congregation just votes on everything? Well, then the congregation does nothing. We don't do the work. We aren't out there making disciples because we're so busy trying to decide what the carpet color is or the paint patch we need to use on the walls. No, congregationalism simply means that when it comes to where the buck stops, when it comes to matters of faith and life in the church, it doesn't stop with the pastor. It doesn't stop with me doesn't stop with the deacons or or the elders, bishops, or popes. No, 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 no. 
It's the membership. And so the members are the ones who are where the buck stops when it comes to approving who's, who's in the body and who's not in the body, who are members officially and who are not members officially. It, it, it's where the approval is for who's going to be an elder, who's going to be a pastor, the lead pastor, who's going to approve the constitution or an alteration to it, who's going to approve the annual church bu- mem- uh, budget. It's the members. Matthew 18 talks about how the, the membership is pivotal and crucial when it comes to matters of church discipline, which is really related to that first one, membership, who's in, who's out. Jesus said this, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. That's a really good practice to take. If he listens to you, you've gained a brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, where do you take it? You tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen to the church, then you take it to the denomination. And then you take it to the Pope, right? No, it doesn't say any of that. It says you take it to the church, and then if they do not listen to the church... Let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. In other words, not officially a member of your church, someone who you're not sure if they believe in Jesus Christ and have saving faith. It's the church. It's the membership. The membership ultimately makes the decisions on who's in and who is not, which guy should be pastor and, and those who should not. They need to be able to recognize and affirm leaders. And they need to be able to hold them accountable. This is what uh, Paul was actually talking about in, in 1 Timothy. In chapter uh, 1, I believe, no, 2, I believe it was, he's talking about Alexander and Hymenaeus. Maybe you remember them. They got kicked out of the church. Someone said, you know, it's, it's great. We, uh, you know, we affirmed Alexander and Hymenaeus as elders. We love these guys. They're great. And then the other guy says, do you know what's going on with these guys? Alex is a, a drunkard and he's been abusing his family and, and Hyman, he's been teaching uh, that you can be saved through the works of the law and then they go, wait a second we need to talk about this we need to evaluate this and it resulted in them being removed the members of the church have the final authority under Christ when it comes to matters of faith and practice and you might say, well that sounds like a really big job it's a big job It's a very big job. It's a tremendous responsibility. And that's one of the reasons it's so important, church, that you devote yourself to knowing God's truth, staying in tune with what it says, so that you can faithfully execute your role as priests and ministers here in the church. We need to be continually on our knees praying for what God is doing here, praying for the leaders that we have appointed, praying that the Lord use our little outpost in his kingdom to do his work here in Westminster, North County, in California, and throughout the world. The buck stops with you. Now let's talk briefly about these leaders. There are essentially two two categories of leaders that are mentioned in the New Testament, and that is deacons and that is elders. Deacons, uh, diaconus, that simply means servant. It means servant. 
There's not a great deal written down in the Bible about what exactly deacons were responsible for, but it seems that they were enlisted to handle the many practical day-to-day matters of the church, the logistical needs of the church, so that they, the other leaders who were teaching and preaching and praying and, and, and guiding the congregation, they could be freed up to do just that. Who were deacons in the New Testament? They were those who were called out from among the church membership to serve in specialized areas of need for the proper health and function of the church. And we see that happening in Acts chapter 6. And the apostles, they were getting consumed with things like waiting on tables. There's so many tables to wait on here for for communion. We don't have time to, to even preach here. We need to find someone else to do this so we can do the things that we've actually been called to, Acts 6, 2. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. What did that do? What did it do when they did that, when they made that decision? Well, one, it allowed for the physical needs of the church to be taken care of, to be met. Two, it allowed unity in the church to be preserved. Because there was a group of people, widows in particular, who were suffering. They were getting left out. And that could have, if it was left unattended to, that was going to create factions in the church and divide that thing. So it, it brought unity. Finally, it allowed those who were called to preach and to teach to do just that. To do it to the best of their ability, as best as the Holy Spirit could enable them to do it. Deacons are crucial to the life of a church. They're crucial to the church's health. That's because physical needs matter. Unity matters. And the preaching of the word matters. In churches today, uh, those serving as deacons, they may be doing all sorts of things. They may be taking care of finances. They may be dispersing money. They may be uh, using uh, other resources and dispersing those that people need. They may be overseeing the maintenance of the facilities, uh, ushering, logistics, all sorts of things necessary for the church to be the church, for this, this facility to even function and our people to gather well. That's crucial. And it's crucial that those who serve as deacons, they meet certain qualifications, character qualifications, just like elders are called to. That's extremely important. There's a lot more that we can say about deacons, and if you, if you have questions you want to talk more, we can talk after the service, and certainly a Q&A session we're going to have next week. Let's talk about elders real quickly. Elders are distinct from deacons in, in that... There is one additional role given to elders, one, one ability that's required, and that is the ability to teach. In the Bible, the words elder and bishop, uh, overseer and pastor, those are used interchangeably. We see that in the New Testament. And so a pastor and an elder, it's kind of the same thing going on there. Whereas our church, uh, it currently has essentially one pastor elder, and that's, that's who I've been called to be. The early church, we see, always had multiple elders. The church in Jerusalem, Acts 15, 22, 
It says this, It seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them. In Acts 20, 17, this is the church in Ephesus. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. All the towns in Crete, Titus 1.5. This is why I, Paul, left you in Crete, that you might amend what was defective and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. All the churches that James wrote to, he said, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, James 5.14 says, Is any sick, any among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church. Let them pray for him. All the churches in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia in Asia and Bithynia, Peter writes to them, 1 Peter 5.1, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of Christ. All the churches Paul wrote to, and all the churches that he started on his first missionary journey, and, and presumably the second and third missionary journeys as well, Acts 14.23 says, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. All over the New Testament, we see elders. Not just one, we see multiple elders serving in various churches. What was the role of these elders? Three things real quick. Elders care for the spiritual well-being of the church. Acts 20, 28, Paul says to the elders of the church in Ephesus, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained by his own blood. They're to care. 1 Peter 5, uh, 1 through 2, Peter writes, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elders and witnesses of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. These men, they're the primary role as leaders in the church, they're responsible for caring for the believers. They were praying for them. They were ministering to them. They were walking through difficult uh, seasons of life with them. They spiritually cared for the well-being of the church. Secondly, elders guard the truth. They're the guardians of the truth. One pastor said, they are the wardens of the word of life, the wardens of the word of life. When Paul gives qualifications and instructions for the role of elders to the church in churches in Crete, he writes, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And that's where we see that same ability to teach come in for elders. They need to know and proclaim and defend God's word. By the way, that seems to be exactly the problem in that church in Ephesus where Alexander and, and Hyman were, were serving there. They were straying from the teaching of God's word, teaching bad ideas, and that's the reason they were ejected. Elders care, elders guard Finally, elders govern the church. Someone might say, wait a second, I thought that uh, the congregation had no authority other than Christ over themselves. And that's true. 
Well, the congregation may have the ultimate say on who is to, uh, on, on all things, they, they also have the ultimate say on who is to be representing them and having the authority to make decisions and to preach and teach and do all those sorts of things. Elders are the ones that the congregation relies on to faithfully teach, implement, and direct them to the word of God and spur them on in the mission that God has called them to. There's a beautiful, mutual, beneficial relationship there. 1 Timothy 5.17 says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of a double honor. That word rule there, it, it, it has the idea of governing. The elders are the ones who are entrusted to make some important decisions. Where's the church going? Is, is this going anywhere? We, we gather every Sunday. And we seem to be doing the same thing. Are we going anywhere? Are we doing something? Is there a mission here? They determine where should the church be focusing its energy, its resources. How, where should the money be spent here? What's the spiritual status of the congregation? Are there areas where the congregation needs to grow? Where they need to be discipled in new and fresh ways? Are there partnerships that are outside the church, church, maybe with organizations that we need to consider? Is our statement of faith, is it doctrinally faithful, faithful to God's word? Are there amendments that should be made to our constitution? Do we have an intentional model for reaching our community and for then making disciples? Is it working? What are the classes that are being taught on the campus? What are the resources that we're using? Elders need to be involved in all of those things. These are monumental matters of importance. And I, I believe they're far bigger than one man. It takes a team. A team dedicated to caring for the church. A church whose spiritual well-being is only in the care of one man is not as well off as a church that has a team of godly leaders who have been affirmed for the task of shepherding the body, teaching God's word, making ministry-minded, not just business-minded decisions. When I was in youth ministry uh, and started out in junior high ministry, I realized very, very quickly that I cannot be all things to each of these students. There's just too many of them. Three junior hires is too many. I had 50. What am I going to do with them? I had to have a team because I could never be everywhere at once. I didn't have enough time in the week. And I didn't even have the right makeup, a personality, skill set, gift set, interests to meet each and every one of these students. I had to work through a team of leaders. And if that was the case when it came to junior high ministry, how much more in the life of a church? Paul was right when he said this is a noble task. Now, I served in churches where a board of elders, it acted more like a board of trustees, handled just business decisions in the church. I've also served in churches where deacons actually serve doing all those practical, logistical things that a church needs, but then they also try to take on the shepherding of the congregation as well. But let me tell you this, I have never been a part of a church where the body was more cared for and ministry was more thriving, and the community more actively being reached than it was cared for, taught, and led by a team of godly shepherd 
elders. My friends, uh, for years, our church has been led by a, a, a team of godly deacons who have loved our people and exhausted themselves trying to care for the practical needs of the church as well as the spiritual needs, and then also for the needs of the schools that we have here. They've done it, and they've done it well. But just like the apostles realized in Acts chapter 6, it's too much to carry all of that and the shepherding of the church on their shoulders. I believe that there is an exciting, vibrant, fruitful people-reaching, gospel-revitalizing, disciple-making, community-transforming ministry future for Bethany. But I think critical to that reality is a church structure that lines up more with what we find in the New Testament. Christ's the head, members, priests, and ministers, authority held by the congregation, and leadership provided by godly elders and supported by godly deacons. I'd like to invite you to be praying. We have two weeks. Be praying the next two weeks. We have a big decision. It will change the way that we do things here, the way that we've done them for 47 years. But it's a change that the leadership and I believe will usher in tremendous blessing and years of years of fruitful disciple-making ministry to come. Would you pray with me now? Father, we, we come before you humbly under your word. And we say, Lord, refine us, align us, Draw us to yourself and make us look like Jesus. Lord, we have been faithfully running here for many years. And God, you have done wonderful things here. But as we look at your word, we see that there are things that we can do that may make us a little bit more efficient, a little bit more effective. And Lord, that's what we desire. And so, Lord, as we pursue that, would you guide us? Would you direct us? Lord, may this not be about any other agenda than your agenda. May this be about no other kingdom than your kingdom. And Lord, we pray that you would do great and mighty things, far more than we could ever ask or think through us in the days ahead. Lord, you know the condition of our world. You know the condition of our country, of our state, of our community. You know the condition of our homes, and you know that we need Jesus. We need your truth. We need it perhaps more powerfully than ever, Lord. And we pray that Jesus Christ will shine brightly in us as a people and that you would use us to impact a world that is in darkness. We love you. We thank you. We pray your blessing upon the future here. For Jesus' sake, amen.